I want to give you a little bit of my take on the Ten Commandments, and if you've heard it before, I apologize, I'll try to do it quickly. If you want to know the Rashi, like, on, or, or like, okay, Ramadan, tell me what, I need, what, what everyone needs to know before reading the Ten Commandments. So number one, the first thing you need to know is, and you may already know these things, these are the basics. The basics are they're not commandments, right? We call them the Ten Commandments, but every single footnote, every commentary, uh, and every rabbinic commentator, the Rashi's will tell you, they, they're not referred to as the Ten Commandments. They're referred to as the Asara Dibrot, the Ten Statements. The ten, the, and so they're not Ten Commandments. We have lots and lots of commandments, but they're called the Ten Statements uh, that go on the tablets, that are inscribed on the tablets. So why, is it, why are they called statements? And then you ask, why aren't they? So if I'm being told, thou shalt not steal, why isn't that a commandment not to steal? Like, what, what's, I don't understand what the difference is. So then it's like, well, what do scholars say then? Why aren't they called, what, what, what does it mean? And scholars will tell you, they're like the 10 overarching principles. So I like that. Instead, so that, that's not, instead of 10 commandments, let's call them the 10 principles. So what does it mean that these are principles instead of commandments? What makes them different? You could say, well, they're category heads. You know, oh no, they, but it doesn't really work out. To make them the category heads, like, and there's actually a completely different Ten Commandments somewhere else that focuses on holidays and things like that. It's, uh, uh, I taught it last year. So what does it mean, Ten Principles? This is my interpretation. Why? are they given on Mount Sinai? So these are not 10 category heads for future legal codes with principle, with um, laws in them. And they're given on Mount Sinai. And we've just gotten there. And this is, on these pages, it's like the mountain. It is supposed to be our communal experience of God. So it's unique. And God is there. There's the burning bush, which I interpret like many of the rabbis as the, the mystical revelation that God is everywhere. It, it, it's enlightenment. So there are two forms of encountering God. Worth, okay, we'll do three. three. Three forms of encountering God we've covered in the course. One would be like angels and dreams and omens being like Yaakov, Jacob and the ladder and things like that. So one is like you have a dream, you have an encounter, you have an encounter with an angel, something like that. Then there is enlightenment. That's Moses at the burning bush. He has a, revela a personal revelation of the nature of reality. It's the God that is, suffuses everything. And then we have Mount Sinai. And it's the people like us. It's, it's, the, it's, it's all of us who are encountering the meaning of the law through these 10 statements. So I think that the 10 commandments are your way without enlightenment, without having the whole Buddha thing, the whole Nirvana thing that Moses has at the burning bush, to encounter God directly. And then what does it mean that it's through these 10 things, these 10 ways, these 10 principles, that you personally, each of us, actually encounter God through this, this is the this is the path. Let me 
contrasted. So wait, Rabbi, are you telling me I don't encounter God through mitzvahs? Well, I don't know. When I go to a restaurant and I order a vegetarian, if I order a grilled cheese instead of a ham and cheese, no, I don't think I'm having a direct, direct experience of God. This is not Mount Sinai. It is not Mount Sinai when I choose the tuna sandwich instead of the ham and cheese. No. So that mitzvahs are incredibly important, and I don't want to dismiss their spirituality. But we're at Mount Sinai, and that's a different level. Where are the tablets that are inscribed with these things? That's another level, and they're not individual mitzvahs. It's not, so the wrong way to interpret it is, well, you know, not stealing is a lot more important than not eating shrimp. That's the Christian way of interpreting it. That's why Christians put up Ten Commandments in their courthouses when they live in Alabama. That's why Christians tell me I love the Ten Commandments. Because their interpretation of it is, come on, even you know Rav Nadav, not stealing is a lot more important than not eating shrimp. Because that's what Paul said in the letter to the Romans in the New Testament. So don't be fooled by other people telling you, we share the Ten Commandments. Isn't that awesome? Because their history is that we share it because it's a lot more important than a lot of the other little things you guys fuss about. They may not realize that they're thinking that, but that's the history of the Ten Commandments. So in the morning liturgy, in the morning prayers, in the Mishnah, it says that along with the Shema and some of the other blessings you know, they were required in the morning to say. And the Ten Commandments was in there. And then the rabbis took the Ten Commandments out of the prayers because of the influence of Christianity and of the Karaites and the Samaritans. So the reason that, so the, the Ten Commandments used to be part of the prayer book, the earliest part, the shortest prayer book before we added a lot to it. So it'd be like Shema Yisrael Ha, and then you'd be like, you know, the Ten Commandments. They took it out because of this reason. They knew that like the buzz on the Ten Commandments is these are the most important ten, that's why they were on the tablets. And the other ones are less important and they're like, we're taking out the prayer book because we can't deal with the baggage that people have stuck with them. Okay, so you're like, okay, fine, Rob, no. So what are they? How do they connect us to an immediate revelation of God? I'm going to use an example you may have heard me use. It's a core teaching of mine. So forgive the story if you heard it. Six months ago, I was listening to NPR, and it was a fascinating story about a, a program in Africa where they allowed people like our president's sons, who are very, very, very wealthy, to pay large sums of money to shoot elephants and rhinoceroses. Now, they're going to do it anyway. Someone's going to let them go out and shoot these things, right, because they just really love it. So the program was, what if we actually make them pay the government? We have a, like a legal version of it, like legal prostitution in Nevada or something. We have a legal version of it, and it's regulated, and they have to pay a lot of money. So they pay $100,000, or it's closer, I think, to 50. They pay $50,000, they get to shoot a rhino. And then that $50,000, or the $100,000, is put into a fund to try to actually protect rhinos and elephants. I found the thing fascinating. It's a good, worthy Talmudic debate for Hebrew school, right? Is this okay or not? But what's most interesting to me, as some of you already know, is 
I think it was Terry Gross or whoever it was who was interviewing him. She said to him, I have a question for you. So we've talked about the ethics or whatever, this weird, interesting ethical dilemma program you're involved in, and you run the thing. He's like, yeah, I lead the safaris. And she said, okay, I got a question. You lead a safari where people shoot rhinos and elephants. Have you ever shot one? So he laughed and he said, I can't afford it, right? I don't have $100,000, right? He said, but it's interesting you should ask me that because there was a time. I was with the guy, we we're on the safari, he lifts his rifle, shoots a rhino right between the eyes, the rhino starts to collapse, fall down, and he looks at me and he says, oh my God, you have got to try this. You've got to feel this. Like, there's no feeling in the world like bringing down, I mean, if you've ever seen a rhinoceros, it's incredible. You know, like, there's no feeling in the world like bringing down a rhinoceros. Like, the guy was just like, wow. So, you know, so he hands him the rifle and he says, you, you, got, it, you got to do it. You got, and he said, very, very funny, I don't have $100,000. And the guy says to him, because the guy's on a high, says, no problem, I'll pay for it. So I'll pay for it. You got it, because they're friends, you know, they've been on safari, you know, like your travel guide, you become close, right? You go to Israel, get a travel guide for a week, they're family. So, um, so he said, you know, he lifted, so he said, I told him, okay. So I took the rifle, and I lifted it up, and I looked through the scope. And he's like, as I'm looking through the scope at the rhinoceros, an incredible feeling came over me. And it was just the simple, and he didn't say it was a voice, it wasn't an angel, it wasn't himself. It, forget all of the metaphysics we try to talk about. Do you believe in God? Is God there? Do you have faith in God? Do you believe in the truth of the Bible? All this discussion of religion that we have in this country, as you know, I think 90% of it is just idiotic. It's nothing to do with religion. Yeah. Looking at this rhino through the scope, now I'm, I'm putting my finger on the trigger, and I have this overwhelming sense. I just don't have the right. I just don't have the right. And I can imagine that. I mean, rhinos, you see them, you know, I don't know, when I was in high school, like, like I said before, I, I was interested in the environment and stuff like that. And I, and I thought that was all a good idea. It seemed like a good value to not litter, you know. So our kids, if you tell them not to litter, maybe they get it, you know. They're like, yeah, littering's bad. But when you like go out to Alaska, and you're at one of those places where it is pristine, and the water, you can see the river. It is completely clear and you take a handful of water and you sip it, that's the best water I've ever tasted in my life. That's not like what comes out of this, my, my tap or the expensive bottled water where it just comes out of a tap in Illinois or something and they <laughs> ship it here and I, it, I put a name on it. You know, wildlife comes up to you and they just kind of look at you like you belong there. You know, like the bear comes up the river and you're like, oh my God, a bear, it's gonna eat me. And the bear's like, swipes up a salmon and like looks at you and they're like, hey Chuck. And they eat their you know, salmon and then they're like, they go on their way. Like, oh, and you're like, opening up the Arctic Reserve to drilling? Like, we don't have the right. Or, the next time I'm, I'm, I'm taking a run and I'm not gonna litter. It's a different level of not littering. You know what I mean? It's not like, yeah, yeah, it's not littering. My parents taught me that I'm a good kid. You know, it does seem kind of like a, a, a nasty habit or bad manners. It gets to the point where you're like, I never experienced nature like this until I did. And then you're like, 
we don't have the right, these things we're talking about doing, we don't have the right, we are the caretakers. Like, we actually are the evolved species who have the possibility of keeping it clean or destroying it. I mean, you can get angry at a tiger for killing a gazelle, but it ain't polluted. You know what I mean? Like, we're on another level. So what I'm saying is that, okay, that is experiencing God. That guy experienced God. It's more than whether he believes the Bible's true or he believes Jesus, Jesus is Savior or the Messiah came and all these kind of, like, university level or, or discussions. What's the difference? Christianity believes this and Judaism. And I, I do it, too. But it's like, and the atheists who say, oh, you know, oh, you're so silly, you believe in a supreme being. And I'm like, well, it's not exactly a supreme being, it's more like a higher power. And they're like, is that like AA? And I'm like, it's kind of like AA, but you know, it's not exactly AA. I mean, like, it's all ethereal. Mount Sinai is about, I don't have the right. Pharaoh was a bad guy. Pharaoh was very mean to me and my family and my kids and killed off my uncle and I hated Pharaoh. I don't like pharaohs. But when you get to the level of no human has the right to be a tyrant, that's experiencing God. It goes from like, you know, it could be like, yeah, yeah, pharaohs are bad, right? I grew up in my grandma, that's like, don't litter. But when you really experience it, like, oh my God, the king or the, lo the local he can go to any girl in the village of whatever age and rape them, which was true for most of our history. Like in Europe, it was common. Just go see the movie Rob Roy with uh, Liam Neeson or Braveheart with Mel Gibson. Okay, don't go see Mel Gibson. Um, <laughs> but you know, like you realize that for most of human history, like people in power could, could rape anyone they wanted, right? And, and you're like, that's when you realize, you don't get to be a tyrant. Like, you don't have the right to be a tyrant. No human, and then it gets Torah. No human being has the, you don't have the right to make a law about that. The law, it, there is a moral law. Like, there's a moral law. Like, it's real, and you are violating it. You, it's not because I grew up that way. It's not because I'm American. It's not because I'm a liberal or something. Like, you, it's really a violation of something universal and real. So that, that's what the Ten Commandments are. They, they put you in touch with, you don't have the right. So then, if you think of some of the commandments like honoring parents and honoring mom and dad, and we usually think of it as obey your parents, clean up, you know, my kids should take their dishes from the dining room to the sink and maybe even clean them once in a blue moon. That's like don't litter, which is, it's like, don't litter is a mitzvah, right? You don't have the right to put something in the clean, beautiful nature. That's a principle. That's the Ten Commandments. So that's why I'm comparing, like, it's a mitzvah not to eat shrimp. But no, that's a very different thing. The Ten Commandments are not like, well, those are more important little things. It's a different level. It is the entryway into experiencing God. So I know for honoring parents, the rabbis say it's, it's an adult mitzvah for taking your, care of your parents when they become infirm in old age, right? And it, no one wants to put my, you know, I don't want to put dad in the shower and I don't want to wipe mom's butt and I don't want to deal with all of that and I don't want to, you know, and I mean, who does? And just imagine for a moment that you're like my parents who didn't have great parents. So a lot of us, oh, you know, and who wouldn't want to have Gloria as a mom? Who wouldn't have Krista as a mom? Yeah. Right, you know what I mean? Who wouldn't want to have Rafi as a dad? Who wanna, you know? 
and we can keep going through all of you. But a lot of people don't have great parents. I'm sorry. They have parents who are narcissistic, self-involved, pass along their own dysfunction from their own miserable childhood. And what the commandment says is, you may not have liked your parents, and they may have disapproved of you being gay, and they may have disapproved of who you married, and they may have told you you were useless and worth nothing and you shouldn't go to school, or they may have done all it, or you know, they, they, they disowned you when you did something. But when they get old and infirm, you have to take care of them because you don't have the right not to. That's why it's not a mitzvah. It's a principle. If you inhabit it, you are immediately connecting with God. Like when you see the bear with the salmon in the river and you're like, oh, this is why I don't, shouldn't use plastic straws anymore. Because right? the straw thing's going around and I believe in it. You know, a whale just washed up yesterday, dead. It had uh, 50 plastic bags in its gut. As it died on the beach, it vomited up plastic bags. So one thing would be, one thing would be, it's like, you know what? We shouldn't be using the plastic straws and the plastic bags. I imagine the person who is next to that whale as they coughed up plastic bags and died under their hands. They were experiencing God. Because that's when they were like, oh, I don't have the right to forget my canvas bag when I go to Trader Joe's. I don't have the right. I don't, it's not, again, it's directly from Mount Sinai. It's directly from God. It's your pathway into God, right? And the other commandments, Shabbat. It's not like, oh, Shabbat. Yeah, I know, Rabbi, I like candles, something like that. But between you and me, I like to go to the mall on Shabbat, and it's the only time I can see my, yeah, right. Yeah. It's, Shabbat's not about, do you keep Shabbat? Do I keep Shabbat? you think God said you have to keep Shabbat? I mean, it's about the fact that it comes after the first commandment, which is, I'm God. There's only one. That's a principle. One way to directly experience in God is you have to experience it's all part of the same thing. Everything, there's nothing, Spinoza said it, but the Torah said it first. There's nothing outside of oneness. Everything is part of it. We could find that there are 25 dimensions and it's all like this complicated physics and it comes out of someone who goes to the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton in 2083. And, and then you gotta say, oh, those 28 dimensions, all part of, all interconnected with us. We're part of it too, right? That's, I mean, to me, the angels and the prayers, you always hear me say it, which is when you get to the quotes from Ezekiel and Isaiah in the prayers, you say, say, kadosh, 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 Adonai, it's a quote from the prophets, because Adonai, it means God of the entire star system. It's of all the galaxies. And then you're saying, everything is full of God. It's all part of one system. And if the angels are singing, it's part of our song. So the first principle is that at some point in your life, and it may be because you could just be a scientist and you're like, sure, everything's part of one thing. You gotta put the formulas together, blah, blah, blah. That's a little bit like, yeah, you know, I agree, you shouldn't be putting the plastic bag. But then someday you may have an experience as a scientist and then they write a book and then we read it and the rabbi quotes it. But it's like, oh my God, all these years I've been doing science. And then one day I went, whoa, it's, we're all part of the same of everything. I read a book by a scientist recently, and I think I quoted a Torah study where he's like, he's a geneticist, and he was studying genetic patterns his whole life. He's world famous, may win the Nobel Prize. And then he's like, one day he realized, he's like, someone said to him, it's like, well, you know, I mean, 
the people in Africa or whatever, you know, I don't know, like, you know, my, my friend's daughter is marrying an Asian guy, and, you know, it's really, really different. And he was like, wait a second, you and the Asian guy share like 99.99999% of your genes. They're really not that different. And it was like, kind of like, you don't have the right to be like, oh, they're so different. It's a racial thing. It's like, no, it's all part of one system. Like, so interconnectedness is the first principle. And right after where it says, and the interconnected oneness, God of want everything, took you out of the land of Egypt to slaves, freed you. So we immediately connect. The oneness, the God of everything, is the God that says, you don't have the right to own someone else's property. And you may, not, you may just be like, oh yeah, I grew up a liberal in the land of Egypt and I know that you, know, you can't own slaves because we're Democrats. Or it could be the American South. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I grew up in the Republican Party with Lincoln and we know we're, that slavery down in the South in the 1840s is wrong. But that's different from, let's say, witnessing a person being treated as property and feeling in your gut, you don't have the right. You know, there were Southerners who were against slavery. And, you know, one, I love the movie Jezebel with Henry Fonda and Betty Davis, and they have a discussion around the table. It's like the Southern boy who at the table, Henry Fonda is one of my favorite actors, and he says to his family, they're like, well, you know, those Northerners don't understand us. They don't understand our traditions. And he's like, well, I mean, some people would question some of our traditions. They're like, boy, what are you talking about? No disrespect, Dad, I'm just saying that, you know, I mean, some of us might have a problem, you know, with slavery. And he was like, oh, where'd you get those northern ideas? And Henry Fonda's basically saying, no, growing up here on the plantation, I experienced the Ten Commandments. In other words, maybe you guys weren't there at Sinai on the plantation, but I grew up here and I was like, we don't have the right to be doing this. And it, so there's slavery. So what's Shabbat? You don't have the right to treat yourself as a slave. Now, I don't know if people get that today. Because I don't know about you, but I'm very tempted to work on Shabbat. I can't get my stuff done during the week. So I'm like, you know what, Rabbi? And I'm talking to myself, it's my choice. By the way, I do keep Shabbat. Some people take, take my examples too far. But I'm tempted, right? Which is, if, like, so let's say I'm not the rabbi. Which is, rabbi, I understand Shabbat's beautiful. I teach it to my kids. I send my kids to Hebrew school. I want them to learn about Shabbat. It's the most beautiful. I agree with Jonathan Sachs. It's the most beautiful religious institution ever created in the history of the universe. But it's my choice that I need to work on my school project or get my kids' science fair project done or to, I have to go to the optometrist at Costco to pick up my new glasses. Like, that's my choice. And what the Ten Commandments was saying is that you turn yourself into a slave when you say you don't get a day off from commerce, manipulation of the universe, creating, and working. You're like, you don't understand, Rabbi. You don't understand, God. I'm a dad, and I own my own business and I can't just grind everything to a halt on Saturday. You know what? I'm going to do early retirement. When I get to early retirement, I can have Shabbat every day. You don't have the right to enslave <clears throat> yourself based on a future freedom that is imaginary, promissory. 
so that it really is whether you ever have that moment. And so it's not a commandment, it's a principle that directly connects you to God. Where you say that, where it's, wait, I feel like I have to, it starts when you're young, I mean, I have to do homework because I won't get it done. And I kind of had those moments early on. I don't think I was just a lazy teenager, which is that I don't have a right to make that decision, that I have to work every day. I was lucky I was raised with Shabbat. It kind of made sense to me that like when I started, you know, when I was doing it, it's like, well, you can read, but you can't write. So if I really need to read, I have to read Romeo and Juliet for school, I'll read Romeo and Juliet, because you're still allowed. I just can't write anything down. I can't write my, my book report. And then I realized, you know, that day where you're like, I, I'm not going to get my book report done. I've got to write it down. I can't wait till Saturday night and start writing down my ideas from the book I read 10 hours earlier. And then, you, I, I mean, I really felt like, I just felt like I don't have the right. And you could say it's because you were conditioned by your parents. But I actually think I was in touch with something deeper with God, which is Sinai, which is, I don't have the right to say I have to work every day. I mean, because we weren't, I can't make myself a slave. Can't be my own slave. One of the things you notice about all of these commandments, all of them, the ones that come after, is if you start breaking them, you lose your connection to God. Right? Once you start working on Shabbat, you're not hearing the voice of Sinai anymore. Once you start shooting rhinos, you're not going to lift your scope one day and say, I don't have the right. I wouldn't be surprised that some of these guys that shoot rhinos and elephants, I wouldn't be surprised if they went hunting with their dad when they were 10, and their dad said, shoot the rabbit, be a man. And I wouldn't be surprised if they, they lifted a rifle and said, or a BB gun or whatever it was, and inside they said to themselves, I don't think I have the right. It's, I mean, it's just a moment of what Heschel called, you know, it's a moment of awe. A moment of awe is not like, oh yes, I experience awe all day long. That's the thing I hate about the misinterpretation. Heschel said all of, all of Judaism is based on the experience of God in moments of awe. So then we made poetry. We said, oh, I had all this morning and I had all this afternoon and the sushi gave me t terrific awe. It was the best sushi of my life. That's not awe. Awe was, he said, these simple moments that may happen that, that course through your veins. Like, that bunny is beautiful and it's a living thing and... And then you squeeze the trigger because your dad's telling you to and your brothers are laughing at you that you're being a, a, a wussy. Makes it a lot easier to shoot the next one. And then you're not in touch with God. So the Ten Commandments are ten principles that, they're, they're, that immediately create the Sinai experience. But if you break them, then you lose it. You know, I've used the example human ones, coveting. So the reason I love coveting is it gets you right to it. It's the easiest example of all time. And, every, and, and yet, for the rabbis, if you're in Hebrew school, when, if you're a fourth grader, if you're a fourth grader in Hebrew school, I raise a question, which is, how can coveting be a commandment when it's a feeling, right? I mean, we can only be punished for things we do, not things we think in Judaism. That's a basic principle of Judaism. And yet it says, you can be punished for thinking, coveting, for thinking, I really want to go out with my best friend's girlfriend. The rabbis raised the question. Maimonides deals with it. Everyone deals with it. But before I tell you how they deal with it, it makes sense in the context of what I'm saying in the Torah itself because it's the easiest one of the ten. 
which is the example the Torah gives is coveting the wife of the man who goes away to war. And so you are living out by Camp Pendleton. <laughs> and there is a guy on to, and there's, now it's women, but right, you know what I'm saying, Gloria, go talk about that. And there's a 25-year-old mom, and she's got a three-year-old, and she's got a flat tire. And you know, like, she's going nuts. Pretty cute. And her husband's on deployment. And you're like, I live nearby, and I see she's got a flat tire. And I got two options, three options. One is I ignore. Two is I call AAA. And three is I go over there and I change her tire. And the whole thing is, if you, if, if you're like, she's like, if you are 100% in your heart, she's not my type, you can go fix her tire. Like, really, if you're just like, oh, God, like, the, worst thing, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is tomorrow morning, she's like, oh, and by the way, can you come over and fix the fence and change the oil? I'm like, please, God, no, don't let that happen. Then you can do it. But if you're like, she's pretty cute, and, but, you know, that's, that's the, if you think she's pretty cute, you don't you fix have her tire. the right to no, walk over there. <laughs> And to say, you know, I, I know I, you probably, I, I live two doors down. I saw you have a flat tire. I'm happy to fix it. And she's like, oh, my God, you're my savior. I got to get my kid to daycare because I'm doing all my shift at Target. And uh, I got to get her to her grandma's. So I go to Target. You're like, you're a lifesaver. And so, by the way, I'm like, you know, if anything comes up like this, it's my cell phone. You just broke one of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's not the Ten Commandments, right? It's not clear by... By legally, you didn't break anything, right? Because I'm saying in Jewish law, you have to do something kind of to break something. You kind of, you know, and so like you didn't eat a piece of shrimp. So you may not have broken a law, but you violated the 10 principles because God was in that moment directly. I do not have the right to put that woman in my sights mm. when I could have just called triple A. And then, hopefully, the AAA driver doesn't think she's cute. And so that's why it's there. And then the whole Ten Commandments starts to fit together, and, 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 not, and not murdering, right? I mean, murdering may seem like a simple one, but taking a life is a big deal, right? When I, when I was a freshman in college, I was assigned, I had to read, I think, I had to read Crime and Punishment. So has anyone read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky? The whole thing is a meditation on exactly this principle which is, you got Raskolnikov, he's a philosophy, he's like your typical atheist today, or philosopher, or fundamentalist, I don't know, whatever. And this just has a thing. There's this horrible woman. Everyone hates her, no one would miss her, she does nothing but bring bad to this world, and she has a pile of money under her bed. And there are people starving, and there's me and my education and my student loans, and there's so many people that can be helped by that money, and the world would not miss this woman the only problem is for her to go away, someone's got to kill her, right? And he does it, and then he goes crazy afterward because he knew in the moment you don't have the right. Uh, you know, like I, I always have this, uh, I, I always think back to when I was in my master's program, I'd been single for, and there was a girl I really kind of had a crush on in my master's program. And she used to like seem to seek my company. And she had a boyfriend at another place. They had a long distance relationship. So I avoided contact with her. Oh, do you want to study for the test? I'd be like, no, nah, I'm studying alone. Mm -hmm. So I, I did basically pull out of the garage and go elsewhere. Now, she started going out with another guy who totally started, was hitting on her. 
And I was like, wait a second, I thought you had the long distance boyfriend. And she's like, well, not anymore. So apparently she was on the market and I didn't know because she said she had the long distance boyfriend and then she left him. I did the right thing. I still did the right thing. And that's one of the reasons I try to advise young people today. If you're not in love with your boyfriend or girlfriend, get single. Yeah, right. The worst thing you can do is stay with someone you don't really, 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 really want to marry through your 20s. Because a lot of people do it. And it's a terrible mistake. Because people who actually are in touch with God will not ask you out. They're not going to be like, oh, you're with a jerk. Let's go out for a drink. Because guys like me, who I, and I think they're a lot like me, you know what? It's better to be thought a heel than to kind of find excuse to spend time, or accept invitations to spend time with someone who's got, who supposedly is in a relationship. So the reason that the Ten Commandments were, the Ten Principles, they connect you directly to God. It's not about anything else. It's not about what you learned as a kid. It's not about what your rabbi says. It's not about what you read. It's not about your religion. They're completely universal. There is a difference between you saying, you know, I do this with the kids in Hebrew school. I mean, you know, everyone always says, I wish, Rabbi, can you make it apply to, to real life for kids? And I'm like, sure. You have a crush on your best friend's boyfriend or girlfriend. You, you could even be in seventh grade and you're not really doing anything, but there's still the other's boyfriend, you know what I mean, by name only. And you're like, oh, hey, Dolores, I, um, you know, I'm pretty good at math. I can help you with the math homework. But really, you know Dolores is going out with your best friend, Steve. But you know, you kind of wish she would say, you know, I don't like Steve anymore. And you're so good at math. And you're always really helpful with my homework. Like, maybe we should go to prom. Or maybe I should be your bestie, or whatever they call them today. And, and again, it, it can actually be of any age, because you don't necessarily have to be in a relationship to be like boyfriend and girlfriend. I mean, you know. And so like, it like these, the kids know what I'm talking about. That's the Ten Commandments. Which is, but, like I said, so if someone says to me, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? Well, one, I think it means these things. I think the Ten Commandments is a really good place to start. So I think that one way not to have a relationship to, with God is to break them. Because then you won't care anymore. I'm telling you, if I, so you could say, well, you know what, the example from your master's program, and I don't know, like, you know, she really liked you apparently, and you really liked her, and yet you told her you're not studying with her, and you basically avoided her. Because even though the facts of the matter may have been, she did want to dump her long-distance boyfriend, and we don't like to talk about it, but some people, men and women, are serial monogamists. They don't leave the person they're with until they have someone else set up, lined up. It would have decreased my relationship with God, because it's not about what was in her mind. She may have actually wanted to go out with me. All I knew is that she had a boyfriend. So had I been, well, you know what? I don't know if they're really serious. I'll flirt with her. I'll study her for the exam with her. I will, um, you know, I'll be like, oh, you want to grab a coffee at Starbucks before class? You know, you're at school. It would have decreased my relationship with God because I didn't know that she wasn't serious about a boyfriend. As soon as you start down that road, you know, you're, it, you, it's not that you're done, it's not that you're bad, it's not that you're going to hell, it's worse than all of that. It's that you're, you're, you, you lose your connection with God. That's why having a connection with nature 
and having connection with your spouse or having connection with, I mean, the music, all the things in which you had the awe, the direct experience of being like, I don't have the right not to do this. I don't have the right to do this. If you actually listen to those and keep them, God will stay in touch with you by revisiting it. You know what I mean? Like, God will keep that connection going because that is God. Like, God is that. Deborah. I think you answered my question just now, but what I was going to say was because it's a feeling, right? So I can see your yeah. example is don't act in a way that would make it worse, but a feeling. Also, like, if I see Gloria's beautiful house and I wish it was mine, I know. And you I point out the asbestos in it. <laughs> No, that's what my wife would do. She'd be like, you know you got lead paint and asbestos in there. I do. I think I'll put up for sale. So then the action for me to be closer to God would be to be real with myself yeah. about it. But and, yeah. the fact of the feeling coming up is just, it's just, you know, sometimes I, you see something you wish you had. If I could end with anything, in a sense, from these years, it's that no one was better than Heschel at describing what Judaism really is about. The problem is you can read what he wrote and it won't help you if you don't get it. Like you'll sit around and be like, oh, well, he's trying, but what he says is that if you look at what the Torah says at Mount Sinai, it says they had yira, which is usually translated as fear or terror. And we use that word yira all through the prayer book and it comes up all through the Torah and it comes up at Kiddush, when we make Kiddush, it's constant. Which is that, is it, so what does it mean? That we're constantly saying one should do everything in life with yira of God. With terror. In most Christian translations, they translate it fear. It's the fear, and many Jewish, by the way. Many Jewish translations, you should have fear of God. You should have fear of God. Yeah. I don't think the English word fear is what it's talking about. Terror is probably better. But Heschel says the whole thing is about that word. Ten Commandments about that word, the Torah is about that word, your life is about that word. Okay, well, what is it? He translates it all. But then you're like, oh, good, all, got it. He's like, you don't have it. You don't even understand it. He's like, so let me give you an example. And he tries to give me an example. And, and you know, I, I, I confuse his example with mine. But I, I love nature. We spent summers fishing and skimming stones and nature, my brother riding horses and all that stuff. I did not understand nature until I was 17 years old, and before, in order to meet people who were going to the same college I was, I signed up for a hiking trip. And they sent us to um, the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. I'd never been to Israel at that time either. Um, and we hiked for three days up a mountain in the rain, on, and it was brutal. My feet were bleeding, I was starving. I didn't get along with any of the people on the trip. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. It was awful. We climbed for three days in the Adirondacks in just fog and, and you know, we were sleeping in the cold and all this stuff. And on the third day, we broke through the cloud line. And I, I still remember, it was a, a, a mountain called Great Ledge Mountain. And at the top of the mountain was a ledge. And it was above cloud line. And I saw a vista that was like what people, I've never been in the Grand Canyon but it looked like the Grand Canyon. And I just, until the, the, until the earth, you could see the sphere at the end, it was nothing but pristine nature. And the clouds were going over, over there, I could see them, and um, they were leaving shadows that were crawling 
over as far as the eye could see. I was completely, I'd never, so that was, I had a moment of awe. And I was like, so that was my Alaska metaphor. So I finally experienced nature. I had a moment of awe. I had 12 other people on my trip. The other 11 took a picture and went back to make camp. They didn't, and I said, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay here. And they're like, you okay, dude? You need a break? You guys see what I'm looking at? And they go. They did not have a moment of awe. Maybe when they were young, they had a moment of awe and they kicked dirt on it and we're never gonna have one again of nature. And, they, and, and those guys probably grew up to be like mountain bikers and skiers and you know, like, in other words, I, just because you have your recreation in nature doesn't mean you have any year of God in your intercourse with nature. Um, I tried to tell the kids in Hebrew school, years ago I had a, sex ed a sexual ethics class for 11th and 12th graders here, and someone got very, very upset about the content I shared, so I became a total coward and I never did it again, because I'm a coward. But one of the things I tried to talk about is I said, the first time you have sex with someone that you don't love, or you have sex with someone you love who doesn't love you, it can kind of potentially ruin sex for the rest of your life. It's a little bit like shooting the rabbit, that then escalates to the fact I'm gonna shoot a rhino. And it feels great. And that may sound incredibly old-fashioned, and it is incredibly old-fashioned, but it's true. So then Heschel, like people used to tell him, and he, he has a chapter in God's Search Manifold, he's like, and by the way, it's not grander. And you're like, what, what's grander? Because he's a philosopher. He's like, a lot of people come up to me and they're like, I know what you're talking about with that awe of nature thing. I went to the Grand Canyon. It was so beautiful. I stood there just like you did. I stood there for 10 minutes staring at it. And it was so incredible. I'll never forget it. I love Ansel Adams. I cover my walls with nature art. And Heschel's like, no. That's the experience of grandeur. I saw the, the Sistine Chapel. That's not all. Torah doesn't care about that. Torah doesn't care about you at the Sistine Chapel. What? And he said, the difference is you know when it's off because then the unpleasant part starts, the terror, because you have responsibility. You hook up with someone, do they hook up these days? With someone you love and loves you, and then suddenly you're like, oh, crap. I have responsibility. Well, my friends tell me I don't have to call her tomorrow. But inside me, it's saying, you have to call her before tomorrow. I have to, I have to meet her when class is done. Because what just happened last night, even though we've been drinking or whatever, I can't not. They're all going to think I'm a wimp. But I got to go see her right now and be like, was that for you what it was for me? Then it's awe. And awe sucks because it brings responsibility. So he's like, people constantly want to say, I know what you're talking about. When I do the prayers, I, I think of all my awe moments too. Awe bring, so nature, you have an experience of awe if you're like, um, I, I'm completely different now with the way I'm going to treat nature. Right? It's not like, oh yeah, I was mountain biking, but my Gatorade got in the way and I chucked it. But you know, one Gatorade's not going to matter. You did not have awe when you were on the mountain with Rob McDuff. 
because Ram Dad will not do that anymore. I'll carry it in my underwear if I have to. Right? Where have you encountered God today? And where have you had awe today? And part of it is that if you keep, you can keep the relationship with God going by fulfilling the responsibility that came out of it. So I know this sounds quaint and silly, so I married Lynn. And it's amazing. We fight all the time, and she can't stand things I do, and all, you know, it's marriage. But, like, in some ways, it's as good as it was at the very beginning. Another experience of awe is, I mean, pitying a poor person is not a moment of awe. It could be a moment of compassion. Like, even compassion doesn't touch awe. Compassion, you can be compassionate without having a relationship with God. You can be like, you know what, if I was in that boat, I'd want a buck. You can do that without experience of awe. But awe is, you know, I mean, like for me, I'm just trying to think, I'll try to, you know, you know I, I Googled my, my a former best friend of mine and I found out he had died several years ago. You know, I had a friend who was cast out of his home because he was gay and ended up contracting AIDS before, when it was called the gay cancer, before they knew about AIDS and before they had the drugs. And he and I became extremely close when I lived in Palo Alto. And, um, and I nursed him basically through his dying. And you can be, and you know, he was a welfare kid guy. He like barely held a job his whole life. And you could be like, oh my God, these welfare people, they don't work, they don't this. I mean, and Wayne was brilliant. I mean, he was like, you know, he was a drug addict and he was a street person, but he was smarter than I am. You hold a guy who's sweating and dying and who's like, I just need to be held. No one once told me, and I'm not gay, but like, I'm like, I will hold you. You know, and you're like, this guy didn't stand a chance. Growing up in Texas and a poor family and being gay, and he's not a little gay, he's a lot gay. <laughs> you know, so like, he didn't stand a chance. So he was on the street. No one in his family ever went to college or school. He didn't stand a chance. You know, and then he was on the street, he didn't stand a chance. And, you know, so like, I don't know. When people come up to me, did you see God today? When people come up to me over by the big lots, and uh, what's the market over there by, uh, by the big lots? Uh, and they ask for a handout. I don't say, you know what? I, if I were them, I could probably use a buck. You know, for me, I see Wayne. You know what I mean? I don't know if that person ever stood a chance. And then the kids here always tell me, as I tell you, they're always like, oh, they're going to spend on drugs. Don't give me any money. <laughs> I'm like, I just hope when you grow up, you have an experience of awe. So that if Heschel says to you, did it come up today? It can be like it did. I saw Wayne today. Uh, I, I took a walk with my girls, and, and we just decided to take a little walk around the sanctuary. And I looked out there, and it reminded me of the Judean hills. It reminded me of walking the hills of Judea before we went to Masada to do it overnight. I saw Masada today. I mean, that's what Heschel's saying. It's like, it, you get to keep the moment. It's not the same moment. You don't get to go to Mount Sinai every day, but you get to keep the connection with God going. So the Ten Commandments, actually, it's not this, you know, I mean, it's, 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 a, tech, you know, it's, it's a technology. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool. Each of them are a heads up to where you can be totally in touch with God. If, when you have the moment of awe, you don't violate it, 
You, because immediately God will be like, fine, you're an idolater. We're good. I know where you stand. You think murder's okay. You think coveting's okay. You think working on Shabbat's fine. I get it. You know, you th- you, you, I mean, you think it's nice that we don't have slavery in America, but if that's what they do in Afghanistan, that's their way. I don't need to be involved. Okay. God's like, good. I don't have much to talk to you about anymore. And, uh, you know, I feel that way. I'm not so psyched about the reverends who stood up in Israel at the embassy opening. And they're like, there's nothing better than this. I love the Jewish people. I love the Jewish state. Because I can't wait till the apocalypse happens and all the Jews are, are in Israel where they're either all dead or converted. And I'm not down with that. I don't think that guy's in touch with God and he's not my friend. So like, well, I'm, you know, like God's, oh, I got it. You guys aren't good with this. But if you are, it's a wake-up call. I mean, a, 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 quick, a quick, we didn't do stealing. I'll just tell you this. When I got to rabbinical school, the, the first make-or-break-it course that decides whether you get left back. So you start out in Mishnah, and you just have this old-fashioned Mishnah with no vowels or anything, and commentaries and Rashis, and you're just like, and read it, read to the bottom page, explain the whole thing, read the Rashi, explain how it relates, and if you're like, well, I'm not really sure, they're like, that's fine. Now go to the remedial class for a year, and then next year we'll try again. So the first Mishnah we did, and we did it for month after month after month after month, is Elimitziot, which is the extensive laws that go on forever of what happens when you are walking on your way and you see an object that could possibly belong to someone else. Page after page after page of the questions that should be running through your head. Does it have a name on it? Can I tell by the location who might have dropped it? Is it a generic thing like a number two pencil where it's hopeless if I took it around a bit? Is this your number two pencil? And Andrew's like, maybe. Pages and pages of all the questions that should be going through your head about what are the different kinds of things you run into that could belong to someone else? If it's a penny, do you think they want it back? Can you keep it? And that's just the Mishnah. Then you get to the Talmud, and the Talmud section is like this long. And you could say, I know it backwards and forwards. I'm a good Jew. The whole point of it is the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Do you understand that when you walk on your way and you see something that could belong to someone else, is your first thought, I don't have the right to leave it there. I don't have the right to keep it. I am compelled to find its owner. That's why you have a huge section of the Talmud devoted to it. You can study that piece of Talmud and never get where it came from. It comes from, it's trying to extrapolate a connection to God. And it is pretty interesting. I try to think of our kids. I've tried to teach pieces of it in the Hebrew school, but it is a whole different consciousness of the way we walk in the world. You know, which is that things don't all belong to me. And it's not finders keepers, except in some cases. And because uh, it specifies that if you, if you find a number two pencil, you can keep it. Because they're so generic that you would never find, unless it has teeth marks on it. Get out. No, it's for real. 
teeth mark. That's why there are pages of this stuff. There are all kinds of marks that something could have that would mean like, and be like, that's totally my favorite pencil. Those are my chew marks from when I'm doing, you know, my, my work. You know, when I, and, and so, so, but it's about that, which is like something as simple as that. It doesn't have to be coveting or murder or, or Shabbat, which is that if you, the first time, maybe when you're little, it could, you, did you ever have an awe moment experience where you were like walking by, you found something, you're like, oh, I wish I just didn't find that, that, that San Diego Gulls jersey because now I've got to find who it belongs to. Or were you the person that says, I wish I hadn't run into that jersey because now I have to find who it belongs to, but does it really matter? You know what, I'm going to leave it there because maybe the person will just come back for it. That's the thing of like, oh, nature's nice, but it's okay if I dump my Gatorade. You, you just lost your connection. That's why the Talmud's like, don't go, don't go. There are all these kinds of things you can think about. In other words, this is your entryway into a relationship with God. And but, and, but it comes not from someone told you. In fact, not even a good Jew. Like a good soul, a good human being. Anyone can have, the, the Christians are right about the fact that the Ten Commandments are for everyone. I agree with that. It's just that the other commandments are important too. But the Ten Commandments, because it's, that if, that's why if there's a Buddhist walking along or an atheist, right? You, you know the famous story about the atheist, right? Which is that, um, I don't know if it's true, but it's told in Israel all the time. One day, there was someone, someone like didn't go to class because they were helping someone on the street, right? And one of his students said, well, you know, the, the, those who suffer in this world, according to the Talmud, will not suffer in the next. You get your suffering out of the way if you suffer in this world. So they said, you know, I know they're helping that suffering person, but, you know, I mean, they probably don't realize that the more you suffer here, the less that person will suffer there. And Ginny knows the story. And Rob said to them, thank God they don't believe in God, the Jew who's helping them, because they were looking at a secular Athenoni Jew. And Rob said, thank God they don't believe in God, because if they believed in God, maybe they wouldn't help him. In other words, he was trying to shame them right, for saying it was more important for you to come and learn Talmud than to help that person. And he was, but he's saying, maybe that atheist has a stronger connection to God. Because he's like, thank God they don't believe in God. In other words, they do believe in God because they know they can't walk by without helping. And so it doesn't matter what you call yourself. These are the 10 technologies, roots, to realizing that moment of awe, whatever it was, and we can keep, let's just call it whatever, and that moment of whatever, and then you're like, oh God, now I've got to do something. Now I've got to find the owner. Uh, I've got things to do. You know, now I've got to actually call this girl. You know, <laughs> now I've got to actually do something about the way I use my time. I think the first time I yelled at Marav, you know, I think I realized, oh my God, you should never yell at a child unless it's over a safety issue. I just knew that, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, right, oops, because then I'm like, but I've done it since. And so like, the th and, and it gets easier every time. Stop yelling at your sister. No, I told you dinner's in 10 minutes. Don't ask me again. Right, exactly, stop. And I'm convinced the first time I ever did it, there's no reason to yell at my child unless it's a safety issue. And I do think it's in the Torah because we did it. We did it about Moses' anger. Don't go, Rabbi! Right? It was exactly that moment when Moses said, it was last time, when Moses said, you rebels, you don't deserve this water. And that's when God said, you're done.
You're done as leader of the Jewish people. One moment, you severed your connection with God. Once you do that, you can't go back. 